This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. I've been reading this book, which has fired me up, Hacking the Code of Life. And you think, oh, yeah. Then it says, how gene editing will rewrite our futures. And you think, yes, written by Nessa Carey. But my goodness me, it fires you up. Nessa, welcome. What is your field of excellence? What are you called? So I'm called Dr. Nessa Carey or occasionally Professor Nessa Carey, but um, I'm only a visiting professor and I don't use that very often. And also because it's Professor Nessa, it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> so normally just Nessa is oh, fine. And what's your field? Right. So I work um, in, I've always worked in the weirder bits of genetics. Um, and my specialism is actually drug discovery, drug discovery in these weird bits of the genetic world. So that's what I did for a living for quite a long time, was how do we take emerging genetic knowledge and turn it into something that benefits humanity? But um, in, an, in an academic setting, it doesn't say weird bits of on your door. <laughs> no, you it know. doesn't. It doesn't. And I'm not a proper academic anymore. I left a while back. But I would be molecular biologist would probably be the okay. proper title. Um, I was amazed reading your book, how gene editing has changed in the last 10 years. I mean, it, I did not know that we knew more stuff. It, it's amazing, isn't it? It's um, lots of people have this idea about gene modification, GM, because we've had so much furore over things like genetically modified crops. Gene editing is like the rocket fueled version of that, but it is so much better than genetic modification. It's a completely different technology that it uses. And it's technically absolutely brilliant. You can do incredibly precise things very quickly. Like what? Give me a for instance. Okay, for instance, um, um, you could take human cells in a dish, for example, and you could, in the space of a few weeks, change those human cells so that they all expressed a particular mutation that you were trying to investigate for drug discovery. Or you can change a gene in wheat to make the wheat um, better at using nutrients from the soil. Uh, you can do all sorts of funky things. You can change the genes in a, in a butterfly and discover that it completely changes their colours. It's, it's opening up enormous fields of research. Now, look, listening to that, I could get half a dozen people with a banner saying, we don't want <laughs> this. This is Frankenstein science. Oh, Frankenstein. We... Yeah. Now, yeah. why... How can you explain to me and others that this is something not to be terrified about? Okay, so one thing we need to remember is that humans have changed the genes of other species for centuries, millennia. That's why we have agriculture. We've done selective breeding of cattle, of wheat, of rice. We've, we've always interfered with other species for our own benefit. But we did it in a very clumsy way thing about gene editing is you can do it in a very, very precise way. You only change one gene, the gene that you want to change. So all we're doing is using a different technology to achieve ends that we've always done as the human species. Um, and it has the potential to make agriculture more efficient, which would be a wonderful thing because the planet's in a huge mess. And it has the potential to really create cures for some incredibly devastating diseases. So I think this is something we should think of just as another tool that we can use. We have to use it intelligently, 
but we shouldn't panic every time you hear the word genetic or gene engineering or gene editing. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. So why is it that I um, I have two responses? I have an intellectual response and a visceral response. And the visceral Ooh. response is more easily communicable because that's how the Daily Mail writes its headlines. <laughs> it does. It does. And we also, in this country, in the UK, have a long history of opposition to genetic modification of crops, for example. Now, we have to remember we're pretty much the outliers in Europe. GM crops are huge and accepted in most other parts of the world. But I think particularly we have this strange concept where we have a very emotional response to the word gene and genome and genetics. And I think some of it is this fear that we're interfering with nature, which is very, very odd because we interfere with nature all the time. You, know, I don't know many people who turned down the COVID vaccine on the grounds it was interfering with nature. But there seems to be something that means, particularly when we're talking about our own DNA, we feel very possessive about it and we feel very worried about it. And we don't even know why. We just do. It's, it is, as you say, a very visceral response. And gene editing... Um, I can sound edit, I can video edit, but it's not always as precise as I might like. <laughs> I might have to go back. Now, yeah. this gene editing, if it's just changing the color of someone's eyes, that's fine. But if you're doing something which would make the basis of a science fiction trilogy, you worry about it. How reliable and precise is it? When... The technology is getting better all the time, but even in its early incarnations, it was incredibly precise. It would be really good at hitting the one bit of genetic sequence that you wanted to hit and leaving other bits completely untouched. And the other thing is that it doesn't leave any other extraneous fragments. So the old genetic modification was big and clumsy and you could make a change in something's DNA, but you'd leave lots of other bits of stuff there. It was a bit like if the mechanic happened to leave his spanners still in your engine. With gene editing, you just make the one change that you want. And to put that in context in human terms, that can be you make one, you change one letter in a book which contains 3,000 million letters. You just now, make one change. But how do you do that? Can you explain? <laughs> I mean, okay. I, I love the idea. Yeah. How do you do it? It's based on a very old system that bacteria developed to protect themselves against viruses. And it basically, um, I could go on about this for ages, but probably the easiest way to say <laughs> is you put in a particular sequence of nucleic acid into the cells that you want to change. And you also introduce a couple of enzymes, so proteins that do the work. The bit of nucleic acid you put in finds the only bit in the genome that it matches, binds to it, and you get a change created by these enzymes. And then those enzymes disappear. And what you have is a perfect change to the DNA, nothing else around it. So you never, you, one of the things that some people dislike about gene engineering, genetic um, editing is that you would never actually know that something had been edited because all you get is the perfect change. You don't get any other spanners left in the DNA. Okay, so you, let's say, I like the idea of just changing the colours of a butterfly mm -hmm. and, and you change them from blue to red. 
What yeah. happens if that butterfly breeds? Uh, oh. If they've been changed from blue to red, do the offspring have blue or red? Excellent question. So that depends on how you did the experiment. In the butterfly case, they would almost certainly be able to pass on the gene because you'll you'll do that editing very early in development, maybe in the egg. Um, now, those butterflies are never released into the environment, so we're not suddenly going to have a huge skewing of butterfly populations. This is one of the things, though, that worries people with using gene editing in humans. When you actually probe into why people are worried, they say that they're worried because they don't want changes being passed on down through the generations. Now, most of the ways that gene editing will be used as a medicine in humans won't do that because they'll never make it into the cells that produce the egg and the sperm. But there is the potential to do that. And that's the bit that really worries everybody. Or rather, that's not the bit that worries everybody. That's the bit that has the biggest ethical implications in human health that you would be changing the DNA, not just of one individual, but of all their offspring. So people have recognized the fear and sorted it. It's all right. They've recognized the fear and they're creating ethical frameworks to deal with it. There is a very good report called the Nuffield Council on Bioethics on gene editing, which I really suggest people read if they're interested in this. It's really, really good read. Um, and so this has been recognized. And at the moment, in all well-regulated healthcare systems, you are not allowed to use gene editing in a way that would mean something was passed on to future generations. You can only use it to treat an illness in an individual. Okay. Um, particular question. As we speak, um, the old queen has died and she was 96. As one gets older, one becomes more and more aware of this potential of mortality. Now, I was Indeed. once told that at the end of all ourselves, there's things which uh, sort of show how long we're likely to live, what we've, yeah. what we've used up. Now, could I go and get something which would expand my, what do they call those things? They're called telomeres. Telomeres, yes. Now, I'd like my telomeres to be renewed, please, so that I can live <laughs> a bit longer. Um, I've got more books to read. Could I do that? Uh, you could, although remember, there will always be more books to read. Um, yes. In theory, you could increase the length of the telomeres. You probably wouldn't use this technology to do so because telomeres are very weird and strange and this technology wouldn't work very well on them. But you have to be careful. And one of the things is if you could push cells towards immortality, you're pushing them towards cancer as well. So there is a very fine balance between increasing longevity by increasing the length of the telomeres, so making them like a young person's telomeres, and also increasing the risk that person will develop cancer. I mean, something's going to kill us, David. I hate to break it to you, but you will never have read all the books. At some point, we're going to die from something. Okay. Well, that cheers me up for the morning. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> okay. Let me go on to something else. If you haven't got enough vitamin A coming in, what happens to you? Right. If you haven't got enough vitamin A coming in, um, particularly in childhood, you will go blind. Um, if you haven't got enough vitamin A coming in and you're a woman who is pregnant, there is a very high risk that you will die during childbirth um, and that your child will die. So not having enough vitamin A, and we mean really severely depleted vitamin A, is a very bad thing. And it's a huge problem. Hundreds of thousands of children in the world go blind every year because they don't have enough vitamin A. And where would those children be? 
They're mainly in areas that rely on crops like rice. Rice is very low in vitamin A naturally. So they're in regions, particularly where there's little access to other things like green vegetables. So particularly poor areas of Southeast Asia, for example, and some areas of Africa. Is rice rich in vitamin A? No, rice is very, very poor for vitamin A. And that's one of the really big reasons. Um, it's a nutritional def deficiency that causes irreversible blindness. And can your technology that this book is about, can that do anything about it? It can. Genetic engineering could, uh, sorry, gene editing could absolutely increase the levels of vitamin A in rice. But it's worth understanding that there is already a technology that has done that. And that is the older gene modification, which has created something called golden rice, which literally is this lovely yellow color. And that has high levels of vitamin A. And the tragedy is, in my view, that this has not really been rolled out very much because of fears of genetic modification. You so see, we that, yeah, that's why yeah. I love your book, because you go out with your banners on, <laughs> on, on page 214. You're out there. Now, why is it? Is it my visceral prejudice? It's, um, it's our visceral pre prejudice in the West. It's also our tendency to go and tell other people what we think they should be doing. So there are countries which would benefit enormously from golden rice, which are not using it because there has been intense lobbying by environmental groups from the West saying genetic modification is a terrible thing. There are other ways you could increase vitamin A levels, etc. You shouldn't have this rice. Um, I do understand that people have different views on this. I do understand everyone has their principles. I do not understand condemning other people's children to a lifetime of irreversible blindness. I, you see, I mean, I drive an electric car. I don't want fracking. Um, I, but I, 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 I could be convinced that GM wasn't a good thing because I'm of that mindset. So tell me, David, why you think it wouldn't be a good thing. Well, so why would golden rice be a bad thing? No, basically? I've read your book and I agree with you. You, you've oh, okay. taught me oh, around. Damn. So, <laughs> so yeah, all it happens is you've got to have access access to everybody. That's uh, that surely <laughs> is what the book is about. Okay, let me let me bring another one. What's the pop? When I was born, the population of the globe was about a third of what it is now. Yes, uh, and I was so motivated as a teenager. I wrote um, a song, a protest song about overpopulation. Cool. Uh -huh. Yes, yeah, but um, that didn't stop the breeding. So, Damn. in your world, in your <laughs> world, what's the way forward? How can your technology help us? Okay, so one of the ways that this technology can help is by massively improving agriculture. So we have <clears throat> two huge things that are going to kill the planet. One is climate change and the other is loss of biodiversity. They are the two biggest existential threats facing us and the planet because you can't separate the two. You know, if it hits the planet, it hits us. If you could improve crop yields, you could do things like in decrease the amount of land that has to be in use for agriculture. And that could be hugely beneficial for biodiversity. And biodiverse ecosystems are also much better environmental ecosystems. They suck up more carbon, they stop flooding, etc. So by take by having more productive crops and taking land out of agricultural development and allowing it basically to rewild 
could be hugely beneficial. However, I I am, despite the fact that I am a pure geek and have been a scientist all my life, I am very resistant to the idea that we science our way out of everything. Um, one of the really big problems we have at the moment is a third of all food that is grown is wasted. It never gets eaten. Um, if you look at the soybeans, which are driving deforestation in the Amazon, 95% of those go to feed cattle. They don't go to feed humans. So we have big problems in the food supply chain and gene engineering, gene editing can help with those, but we can't expect it to solve the problem on its own. But the more we can do to create more food from smaller areas of land so that we then can release the other land back into the natural world, the more we'll be helping ourselves. So gene editing has an important part to play in this, but we shouldn't rely on it to solve everything. Okay, but if it just helps a bit, have you yeah. got the ear of government uh, is the establishment with you i can see the, the the listener can't but i can see your face fall and you're out with your banner again i can see Absolutely. it um no i don't think we do have the ear of governments on this um and i think we have really big problems which are wider than just gene editing on the fact that Governments, particularly in the West, operate on very short term cycles and what politicians are interested in is getting reelected. Um, and therefore, they don't tackle some of these really difficult questions about you know, how do we protect the planet for the planet's sake and for our own sake for the future. And so they will tend to sidestep things. However, um, it, there are signs that the UK government might be getting more um, nuanced in its response to gene editing as opposed to gene modification. And there were lots of signs that the European Union was going to become more nuanced as well. And then it suddenly had this backtracking. Um, but I think the signs are starting to shift a bit and that we will see that gene editing is taken up and adopted in a way for agriculture that didn't happen in Europe for gene modification. Isn't it one of the problems that the words and the concepts are quite difficult to understand? They are. The, the, the words are difficult to understand. The concepts should be easy if people like me do our jobs properly, of trying to explain them well. Um, but it is that thing of it's much easier to frighten people than to, than to enthuse them. And inform um, them. And inform, and inform them. Um, and it's also what we need to be very careful of is, particularly in agriculture, are we frightened of the technology or are we frightened of control of the technology? By which I mean, people were very uncomfortable with the first iterations of gene modification where a small number of companies held most of the intellectual property and could create a stranglehold. The way that gene editing has developed, people are much more sensible now and they realize that position is not tenable. And so there's much more open access to the technology. Um, and going back to the golden rice, nobody was ever going to make money from golden rice. Um, that rice was going to be made freely available to everybody. So there wasn't even a commercial imperative to stop it. What about the living creatures that cause us most harm? Um, I There was a bloke in Australia. He was just killed by his uh, pet kangaroo. That, <laughs> that doesn't happen very often. It doesn't. But, but lots of people are harmed by very small creatures. It's in your book. It's in my book. The most dangerous creature to humans in the world, the one that kills more people than anything else, is the mosquito. 
um, because it's a vector of various diseases. And it is a huge problem. Um, and you can use gene editing in various ways to introduce genes that will lead to population collapse in mosquitoes. I'm slightly on the fence on this one um, in that I think introducing an irreversible genetic change into wild populations of insects is a really quite risky thing to do because we don't know which other bits of the ecosystem depend on that. So if you take out mosquitoes, for example, will you see collapse of lots of other species? On the other hand, though, I'm then falling into that thing of I don't get malaria, so I can be fussy about this. So I have to be very careful. I think there are other technologies. So there's one, for example, from a company called Oxygen, which you can release. It causes a collapse in mosquito populations, but it doesn't wipe the population out forever. And I have to say, personally, I'm more comfortable with that. I think irreversible eradication of a species is a very, very poor idea. But then we also have to work with the people who live in the countries where this has a massive health burden. You know, we, we can't just impose our way of thinking on them. That would be highly inappropriate. You are talking to me in the UK. You're a professor in the UK. Other people in Uganda, in, um, in, in far away, the places that we go to on holiday, who Absolutely. agree with you? Yes, there are. Um, you know, it's And one of the things that is starting to happen, it's taken far too long, is proper engagement with scientists in these countries um, and with populations in these countries. I don't just mean in terms of gene editing, but in terms of any kind of science and how it's implemented. There's been far too long a history of scientific white saviours who go in, say, we'll solve the problem for you, come back out again. And of course, all we actually do is usually muck things up because we haven't listened, we don't understand the social context, etc. There needs to be much greater global cooperation on topics like gene editing and lots of other topics as well. And it needs to be a genuine partnership. We have to stop this, you know, we will hand down the fruits of our technological labours. Okay. I have a small garden, a very small garden. My tomatoes aren't as sweet as I'd like them to be. But <laughs> what, I mean, I think your book is fabulous. I think it is just really, really good. What can I do and the people that listen to this and read your book, what can we do now? How do you mean? As in what well, can well, make, we do making with our tomatoes? It, making, making a difference. Is it just changing the public mood? I think the very first thing is to get informed about it and to understand what these different technologies mean. I think particularly in terms of gene editing, understand why it is so different from genetic modification and then really challenge our own ideas about why are we uncomfortable with it? Um, do we actually understand that or is it just a very emotional response? And then try and put it into the bigger context of everything that's happening in the world and then go and talk to people, go and discuss what you think and talk to policymakers um, and talk to farmers and talk to consumers and just basically just get more involved in this. Science shouldn't be left to the scientists. You know, we get very excited by the tech, but we really shouldn't be allowed to run everything else on our own. Hacking the Code of Life, How Gene Editing Will Rewrite Our Futures is an absolutely splendid book it's a sort of silent spring for the next generation professor carey nessa carey thank you thank you very much david it's been a pleasure <laughs>